listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back, everybody. It's episode seven, Ohio versus the contenders. Today, we're going to be talking about four Ohioans who were presidential contenders, some closer than others. It's been exactly 100 years since an Ohioan was elected president in 1920 with Warren Harding from Marion, Ohio. We'll be talking about President Harding in a later episode this season. But why has it been 100 years? We had eight presidents from 1840 to 1920. For those of you counting at home, that's eight presidents in 80 years and zero in the last 100 years. Today we'll be talking with two of my favorite podcasters, uh, the creators and writers for the show 1865, uh, a podcast uh, put out by Wondery about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the presidency of Andrew Johnson that we'll discuss today, and also uh, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War for Lincoln, who we did a show about earlier. Uh, we sit down with Eric Archilla and Stephen Walter uh, from 1865 for a, a really fun uh, interview, and I wish we could have played all of it. Uh, but we'll talk about President Johnson and the man who nearly succeeded him uh, in after his impeachment, uh, and that's Ohioan Benjamin Wade, who we discussed in an earlier episode of Ohio vs. Impeachment. We'll get Stephen and Eric's take on that crazy time that their show covers, 1865 to, to 1868, when Johnson was impeached. A really cool show. Again, 1865, I implore you to listen to that. It's, a, it's an audio drama, so it actually kind of plays like a, almost like a TV show. Uh, but very cool, and so glad to have them on. So they're doing some other stuff. You can go find their show. Uh, Steven C., the co-executive producer of American Election, Wicked Game. It's about all the presidential elections in the history of this country. Um, they started from from Washington. They'll go all the way through the 2020 election uh, a week after the election. So it comes out every week on Tuesdays. And I'm more than comfortable saying that our show is, is the second best presidential podcast going on this year uh, behind Wicked Game. It's a really great show. Uh, it's a little more of a normal podcast with some of that audio drama voiceover work uh, that you hear in, in 1865. But go check that out as well. Uh, also, today we'll be talking about the first female to run for president, Victoria Woodhull. Uh, we covered her in an earlier episode, and we'll talk about that failed run in 1872, but still very historic, uh, and we'll talk about her run for president, the first woman to ever run for president. And lastly, we'll look at the failed presidential run of John Glenn from 1984 uh, with Bruce Carlson from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, one of my favorite political history shows, uh, and that's also a episode we did last season about John Glenn versus the world, uh, and we'll play some parts from that for his failed run in 84, and also look at the most recent run for president by an Ohioan, the run by Republican former Governor John Kasich in 2016 when he lost the nomination to Donald Trump. Don't forget to, to rate and review our show. If you're on iTunes, just scroll down. Uh, and, and give us the, the rating and, and to write a review. We'll read that on the air. 
Uh, really appreciate that. It really helps bump the show up the rankings. If you have questions or want to talk about an issue with the show or future show ideas, don't hesitate to email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Or if you want an Ohio V the World t-shirt, uh, free shipping on those, just email us and, and we'll get those out to you ASAP. We are halfway through seasons, uh, season five here of the show. Uh, really appreciate everyone who's been listening. So awesome to see uh, just how many of you are, are digging these episodes about Ohio and the presidents. But let's get started. We're going to talk about four Ohioans who sought the presidency. It's episode seven, Ohio versus the Contenders. presidency probably came closer than any other person in history to becoming president. Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio, Jefferson, Ohio, up in northeast Ohio near Ashtabula. And to talk about how Wade's near presidency came about, uh, it was all through the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, our 17th president who assumed the office following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. That assassination by John Wilkes Booth, the actor, is the subject, at least the start, of the show 1865, which is co-written and created by our two guests today, Stephen Walter and Eric Archella. I just voted for it as a podcast of the year. Uh, it, it is really just an, a great show. Uh, I had a number of friends tell me to, to listen to it, and, and I'm really glad I finally did. It came out last summer uh, and ran all the way to the end of the year, 13 episodes. There's a lot of good inside the episode episodes in between, uh, talking with Eric and Steven. But we talked first with Steven and Eric just about how they met and how this idea for the show 1865 came about. In a theater history class they had, uh, they took together in the early 2000s at Baylor University. How did you two start writing together? How did you start writing 1865? And you guys have known each other for, what, 20 years? Yeah, for far about, too long. Yeah, too long, too long, I say. <laughs> Yeah, Eric and I met, uh, we were both theater majors at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and that's how we first met. And, and the way that we sort of entered into the world of 1865 was through our theater history class. We were partners, right, Eric, on a research project. Yeah. And I believe that we were given a list of topics from the 19th century theater history uh, class, and there was really nothing on the list that was really interesting. And the name John Wilkes Booth was on there. And that's what, that's what popped out to us. Uh, and that's how this all began. It began as a research paper way back in college. But I hated research papers. And Eric did too. So we went to our professor, Scott LaHaye. And I don't know if Scott's ever listened to 1865, Eric. We should reach out to him. We name drop him all the time. <laughs> I just don't know if he knows about it. But Eric and I went to Scott and we begged him to, you know, to write a play instead of a research paper. And for some reason, he said yes. And from that uh, project, a play about John Wilkes Booth was born. A very, very bad or, or to be favorable, mediocre play uh, that was the sort of genesis of all this. And then 10 years went by. Eric and I never... You know, we always talked about maybe picking it back up again and getting into it and doing something with it. We got a grant to turn this research play into a real play, and that became a project called Booth, which premiered at Second Thought Theater in 2013. And from Booth, 1865, the podcast was born. The first thing you'll notice about 1865, the podcast, is it's a little bit different. It's an audio drama. There's no narration. Um, it's just actors. Uh, it's really just like a, a play that Stephen and Eric had written. 
um, but it's captivating. And it's just like any of those uh, TV shows with cliffhangers that you binge watch. I mean, I binge listened to 1865. We talked to Stephen and Eric about what is an audio drama. Well, I mean, it, it harkens to the old days of, of radio, um, of hearing stories through an auditory way rather than seeing them. I mean, I mean, I started as a playwright and then moved into film and television, and this is my first time to write a, a narrative in the audio space. I mean, it's, it's bizarre writing with one dimension, right? Um, it presents a bunch of really unique challenges. I mean, some of those challenges are really obvious. Like if Eric and I are doing a scene, I have to walk in and my character walks into the room. I sort of have to announce who I am or who I'm talking to. So I have to be like, Mr. Archilla. And he has to be oh, like- Oh, Steven, it's you. Yes, exactly. Here we are in my office. I'm so glad <laughs> we're talking today. I mean- This place you know, is a mess. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you try, you try your best to do it not like that. You try your best to do it in an art way but you do have to give people the basic pieces of information because there's no there's no visual component yeah um but but i also found that we're you know inside those limitations there's also opportunities and one of the things that's great uh, about writing audio drama is that i feel like podcast listeners generally are interested in the granular details you know they want to really get in there they want to dive deep into the subject that they're consuming and that that gives you a lot of license to explore nuance and complexity in ways that you don't always get to uh, certainly not in film because in film you know you've got what 90 minutes to three hours uh, depending on whether you're you know an up-and-coming filmmaker or Steven Spielberg <laughs> and, and there's just not enough real estate to get into the nitty-gritty you know I mean even if you look at uh, the movie Lincoln I mean they do a masterful job of packing that movie with as much nuance as they can but they can only really scratch the surface of the subjects but the for a historical piece you're able to squeeze in a lot more of the history. actual text and the history because we do need to hear some of that information that we wouldn't get through a visual medium but yeah. what what is an audio drama i mean i tell people an audio drama is just netflix for your ears right it's just like a serialized tv show it's like breaking bad or uh, Deadwood or The Wire or, or whatever show you're watching, The Marvelous Ms. Maisel, House, House of Cards for your ears. Originally, the show 1865 was based on their play, like Stephen said, called Booth. Uh, and it was more about the assassination of Lincoln and Booth and his co-conspirators and this love triangle with Lincoln's son, uh, which was all really fascinating stuff. But the show, the show really takes off when... Secretary of War Edwin Stanton takes center stage. Stanton, uh, Lincoln Secretary of War and Johnson Secretary of War until he was fired. Stanton from Steubenville, Ohio, was the subject of a show of ours in season three called Ohio versus Civil War. Uh, a really fun episode we did with uh, Stanton biographer Walter Starr. And I implore you to go back and listen to that when you listen to 1865. It's a, a great episode to kind of give you a little more background on Edwin Stanton. But he was a fascinating character, an anti-hero, kind of like a, a tone in the Tony Soprano mold um, that you're almost not sure if you should be rooting for him. Uh, but he really becomes the main character in 1865, his manhunt of, of Booth and his fractured relationship with President Johnson. I always say that we didn't decide that Stanton would be the lead of the show he decided it right like stanton stanton sort of like from the pages of history clawed his way out and what as was his way sort of demanded that this story be about him and i think that any careful examination of the major 
political and historical events from 1865 through 1868 put Stanton right in the, at the center of the action, you know? Um, I mean, he leads the manhunt uh, to, you know, to capture and kill John Wilkes Booth. He presides over the military tribunal to prosecute Booth's conspirators. Um, he is the reason uh, that Andrew Johnson is impeached. You know, the, you know, Johnson's decision to terminate Stanton is what triggers his impeachment. Um, the law that Johnson violated when he fired Stanton was put in place explicitly to protect Stanton from being fired. Um, you know, he was uh, uh, working behind the scenes as a champion for the radical Republicans in Congress, you know, to push through the 14th Amendment. Um, I mean, he's right there at the center of the action. And so I think that he sort of determined that, history determined that for us. Because here you have this man who seems to be on the right side of history in the 3,000 foot view sense, right? When it comes to this question of abolition, of emancipation, and of, of you know, civil rights. But at the same time, this man who through a modern lens could easily be viewed as a monolithic hero also commits some horrific atrocities. Uh, he's wily, <laughs> he's manipulative, he's Machiavellian. Um, you know, he's, he's almost, I wouldn't say singularly responsible, responsible, but I would say largely responsible for the first execution of a woman in US history. Yeah. Um, he, he arrived at that execution through dubious means. And so when you, put, when you put these things up against one another, it's a very difficult moral question. If, if, if the question is, is Stanton a good guy or a bad guy? It's really tough to find a clean <laughs> answer to that question. And I think that's what makes him such a fascinating character. And I think that's what makes him so ripe for drama and for narrative exploration. There was so much research that went into creating a show like 1865 and Eric and Stephen really packed it in there. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to them today, other than they created an awesome piece of history, um, was the fact that they become experts on Andrew Johnson, our 17th president, who I believe is our worst president ever. It's really down to him and James Buchanan, the 15th president, as far as I'm concerned. We'll discuss Buchanan in much more detail in our next episode. But we asked Eric and we asked Stephen, in their, in their belief, is Andrew Johnson our worst president? Okay, excluding the 21st century, I would say... Buchanan is definitely down there. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then I know Steve has personal feelings about Jackson, but I would say, to me, I think uh, Johnson's the worst. I think um, Specifically just because of what he was handed and what he left. President Johnson does make some infamous history in Ohio in 1866 as part of his Swing Around the Circle tour. He tours the country giving speeches, uh, and it really goes poorly. Uh, Johnson has a drinking problem. Johnson gets into it with the crowd. He makes four visits to Ohio, Toledo, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. We talk with Stephen Walter just about that tour and, and just what a disaster it was and how he brought along a very famous Ohioan as part of the tour. He attacked the legitimacy of the 39th Congress. He attacked the lawfulness of the recently ratified 14th Amendment. Um, you know, he was uh, incoherent and rambling, and it was an embarrassment. Um, actually, what, what's interesting is that when Johnson goes on this tour uh, to drum up support uh, for the Democrats in the midterms, but also to position himself for reelection, by the way, in 1866, in July of 1866, He's out there campaigning for the election of 1868, which yeah. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody. <laughs> but he actually, he actually to, to drum up popular support, he brings along another Ohio man with him. 
Um, he brings along a, a man from, I believe, Point Pleasant, Ohio, named General Ulysses S. Grant. Like he's out, Grant's there to like work up the crowd and get people excited because Johnson wanted big crowds and he doubted his ability to draw those big crowds. So he brings Grant along because of course, Grant is the hero of the Civil War and Grant is extremely popular. Um, Grant doesn't love Johnson though. And when he gets out there on the road with him, he's mortified. He wrote a letter to his wife and he said, I have never been so tired of anything before as I have been with the political stump speeches of Mr. Johnson. I look upon them as a national disgrace. Johnson really goes off the rails. He's giving a speech uh, when he's interrupted by a heckler. We talked to Eric Archella about that day in September of 1866 in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. It actually began in Cleveland. Uh, September 3rd, he gave a speech, and there was a heckler in the crowd who riled the crowd against him. He started off by saying, I've done this, I did that. so a president bragging about all the great things he's done and uh, a person in the crowd said too many eyes. Um, and then he got into a, a match with this heckler and the heckler said, uh, be more dignified. It, it finally culminated when the person in the crowd said, hang Jeff Davis and Johnson yelled back, why don't you hate Thad Stevens? And um, so again, directly attacking Congress and calling them treasonous and saying they should be hung. One of the papers after the Cleveland incident said it was the most disgraceful speech ever delivered by a president of the United States and said the president of the United States cannot enter upon an exchange of epithets with a brawling of a mob without seriously compromising his official character. Johnson's swing around the circle tour uh, really was a rarity in American politics, a president going making speeches from city to city. Uh, Unfortunately for him, it, it also exposes Uh, just how poor of a statesman he was in such a difficult time for the country, the beginning of Reconstruction, uh, trying to bring the country together following that uh, four years of civil war. Uh, We talked to them about how the swing around the circle likely led to Andrew Johnson's impeachment the next year. It started off as him trying to connect with the people because the people were very supportive of Johnson at the very beginning. Um, And they, they realized that he was stepping in in difficult shoes and they were hopeful of what he was going to accomplish and then throughout the tour he devolved into this um drunk and uh difficult to understand babbling buffoon and he alienated a lot of people throughout that tour and then directly attacked congress in these speeches calling them treasonous and Um, trying to rile the crowds against Congress. For President Johnson, the tour backfired. Um, In the 66 midterm elections, the Republicans swept both houses. They won, I've got some data here, they won 173 out of 226 seats in the House, and they won all but a very, very small handful of seats in the Senate. And from that moment forward, impeachment whispers began. Andrew Johnson was Lincoln's vice president. Following Lincoln's assassination, no vice president was named. And the secession was there was no 25th Amendment. And basically, the successor, if Johnson were to die or be impeached, 
would be the president of the Senate. And the president pro tem of the Senate was Senator Benjamin Wade, a radical Republican. Uh, and it's here where he enters the story because he would be the person who would become president when Johnson is impeached. If he's convicted, uh, it would be Ben Wade, a controversial figure in his own right. We bring in Bruce Carlson, friend of the show and the host of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, one of the best political history podcasts out there. Uh, and we talked to Bruce just about, you know, who was Ben Wade? And why was he such a, a rough individual uh, and disliked by so many of his colleagues? Benjamin Wade, I mean, from from Ohio, from Jefferson, but a guy that that is reared in kind of a pioneer life, a tough guy, cattle driver. I mean, literally uh, his family and he uh, start out making money driving cattle in these very rich lands for this and driving them to eastern markets. And it was said that sometimes Wade couldn't see much of a difference between the cattle that he was driving and the people <laughs> that he was uh, dealing with his and the, colleagues, in the way yeah. his colleagues in the way that he commanded people. But you could also go too far with that because he also garnered great respect and he was quite a leader. And even what he, what he always did was attract people who were the strongest, who were the big heavyweights and they liked him and they, they saw him as somebody displaying courage. So he had that too going for him. As the fight for impeachment heats up, Stephen tells us during their research that there were fears that the radical Republicans led by Ben Wade would actually stage a coup and take over the office because Johnson was just that unpopular and they believed that dangerous to the future of the United States. I remember in some of my research about, um, you know, the, the, the period of 1865 through 1868, that there really was a legitimate concern that Ben Wade would lead a coup, basically, and that the radical Republicans would take over the White House by force, essentially, and, you know, push the Democrats and the moderate Republicans out. And I mean, you know, it was just such an uncertain time. And, you know, nobody knew what the outcome would be. And I think that there was a lot of fear uh, at that time, much of which was driven by racism and xenophobia, frankly. Johnson is impeached by the House of Representatives in 1867. As the case moves to the Senate, uh, there are a lot of people who are concerned that Ben Wade becoming president would be just as dangerous in a different way as Andrew Johnson. We talked to Eric Archella and Stephen Walter from the podcast 1865 about that concern of what would happen if Wade became president. You have to remember that Ben Wade was considered a figurehead of the radical Republican faction of the party, right? Um, and so that made him for many, certainly for the Democrats, but even for many moderate Republicans, that made him persona non grata. So Johnson's elevated to the vice presidency, Lincoln's assassinated, Johnson becomes president and no longer serves in his function as president of the Senate, right? And so then that responsibility is left to the pro temp, this guy, Ben Wade, and Ben Wade is considered a radical. And so, the, so for many of the moderate Republicans who despised Johnson, many of these guys, for them, they would rather deal with the devil that they know than the devil that they don't, because they don't want a radical Republican in the White House. And if Johnson is impeached in the line of secession at that time, the president pro temp of the Senate becomes the next president. And, and a very delicate time where you had things like the, um, the Memphis riots and the, uh, the New Orleans massacre and um, just all of these horrible events that are happening in the South and tensions are high and uh, 
Benjamin Wade would have just completely blown the situation up. That's why odds makers thought that since the Republicans had the votes, that they'd be able to impeach him. But something else is at play here. A number of people, especially those seven Republicans who vote against impeachment, didn't want Senator Wade to be president. He was too volatile. He was too radical. And he was too unpredictable. You know, the New York Times had a quote at the time that Andrew Johnson is still president because Ben Wade is his successor. This idea of people voting to keep Johnson in office as much as they despised him over those four years he was president because they didn't want to see Wade there. We asked Bruce about that. I think people were afraid of that steamroller that was coming in. The politics and the personality, sure, is there. And if it was a lighter person, a more moderate person who was in that pro temp spot, yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it, it's more likely, in fact, that Johnson would have been impeached. In order to be impeached, a president has to be convicted by two-thirds of the Senate. There are 54 senators in 1868, meaning he would need 36 votes to be removed from office. And the vote's going to be close. There's way more Republicans in the Senate than there are Democrats. And they really only need to keep more than, as long as not more than eight Republican senators defect and, and acquit Johnson, then he will be impeached. And Benjamin Wade will take office. The, the senator from Ohio, from Jefferson, Ohio, will become our 18th president. We discussed this impeachment process much more in detail uh, in our episode, Ohio versus Impeachment. Go back and find that. Um, but it really would come down to one senator, a senator named Edmund Ross, from the, a Republican from Kansas, a younger senator, but coming from this very abolitionist state, uh, the state of Kansas. It was believed that he would vote in favor of impeachment, as many of his constituents in the state of Kansas uh, would desire. But that would not be the case. We talked to Bruce about Edmund Ross. Northerner at birth, right, and an abolitionist, uh, you could say, uh, but a newspaper editor and involved in state politics. And in fact, uh, he uh, subs for a senator who was pro-Johnson, actually uh, shot himself because he couldn't handle the virulent political opposition in Kansas. I think the best way to describe it is this would be like uh, what, what Ross's situation in Kansas is, would be like a senator from California coming out as extremely pro-Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to look at it in today's politics. Kansas was the, one of the strongest Republican states there had been. It was, it was a state where people literally shed blood for the Republican Party before the Civil War started. Yeah, bleeding Kansas. Bleeding Kansas. He also doesn't keeps the cards close to his vest, too, and it starts to, sp word starts to spread slowly as impeachment charges are brought out that he's not saying either way what's going on. And in fact, that's the case up until the vote on impeachment. He yeah. doesn't, he doesn't say I'm voting for impeachment. He starts telling people I'm, I'm a, I'm on a court. I'm going to listen to the evidence and make the best decision. And he gets letters and telegrams from Kansas that say, you're, you're, you, need to, you need to tell us how you're going to vote. We want to know. And he refuses. Who? So he does become a center of suspicion. Those other senators you referenced, I think largely they kind of knew. These impeachment hearings, they go on for almost two months. And they are must-see theater. Everyone's there. The women are dressed in their finest clothes. The most important men of the day are in the gallery in the U.S. Capitol building. And in May 16, 1868... The most popular ticket in town was for the vote. The closing arguments were done. 
and it was time for Salmon P. Chase, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from Cincinnati, Ohio, to take the vote. And so they get up and they go alphabetical, and everything's going according to plan. None of those other moderate or maverick Republicans vote to impeach, but people are still hopeful. And when they call Ross's name, the crowd gets incredibly quiet. They say that the first time that he was called to vote, the you know, Chief Justice Chase has to say, could you please repeat it? Yeah, you're and right, then yeah. I think that he, you know, I think things were so hostile in that capital at that point that uh, he probably could have even been in jeopardy for his physical safety. I mean, that's just how strong. And then going back to Kansas, he certainly references that at times he felt that way. Um, it was a, you know, there were people saying that the senator before him had committed suicide. And there were people saying like, well, you know, um, I wish you'd use the same gun. You know, which is threatening, just like the kind of things you see on social media today aimed at politicians. Edmund Ross's vote means that Andrew Johnson will not be impeached. By a vote of 35 to 19, not meeting the two-thirds majority they needed. They needed 36 out of 54. It's Edmund Ross's vote, a possibly purchased vote by the president. Wade leaves politics at the age of 67. He goes back to Ohio. He continues to practice law, but he never becomes president. Nobody came closer to becoming president than Benjamin Wade. He would die in Jefferson, Ohio, 10 years later after the vote. In 1878, we asked Bruce Carlson one last question. Just has anyone ever come this close? One vote away from president. The story of Senator Ben Wade. He's the closest because the real way to look at that is all betting odds would have been the other way where all these other events we can talk about uh, would be, um, you know, a, a small chance that we wouldn't have expected it. But this was uh, this was a guy that had all the odds in Washington were that, uh, you know, they didn't know that there was some trouble with this Ross guy, but they figured the votes were there. And had he been president, he would have been a, one of the more radical presidents we've ever had, a person that early on, even at these times, supported women's rights, um, that wanted, wanted women's rights added to some of the civil rights bills, that obviously supported strongly rights for African Americans, saw them as equal, also was was skeptical about capitalism and its ability to deliver income to people and thought that people were getting cheated by big business. And so you would have a president. Now, again, I take that other side. Maybe it would have only been a, uh, a short presidency. Yeah. And then the conservatives and moderates and the Republicans would have nominated somebody else and got him out of there. But who knows? Uh, we, we would have had one of the more radical presidents. Again, we implore you to go listen to 1865 the audio drama podcast from our guests today, Eric Archilla and Stephen Walter. Really appreciate them making time to meet with us. Uh, there's so much stuff that we talked about, and it's a shame we could only use uh, you know, a little less than half of that interview. But we talked with Stephen just about it, the show 1865, what it's about, uh, and how this sort of progressive movement that we attribute to Theodore Roosevelt in the early 20th century really begins in this period with the abolitionists and the Freedmen's Bureau and the fight over Reconstruction. Uh, issues like women's voting that we'll talk about in the next segment. They all began to come to the forefront between 1865 and 1868. 
We all know about the lost cause mythology, the lost cause narrative about the Civil War that was propagated all the way through Jim Crow up into the 1950s. But I think also this, there's this idea that progressivism started with Teddy Roosevelt and you know, around that time and the, that the progressive era was really a turn of the century um, issue. And I, I think that you can see the seeds of it in the lead up to the Civil War, during the Civil War, and in the direct aftermath of the Civil War. I mean, I believe it's the election of 1872 that uh, Susan B. Anthony cast her first uh, vote and is arrested for it, tried for it. I think she's fined $1,000, which she refuses to pay. Um, ultimately, the guys that allowed her to vote are, are tried and convicted, and ultimately General Grant pardons them at, at Susan B. Anthony's behest. But I mean, what you could see is, is that the progressive movement is, is, is already born the minute that the Civil War is over. I mean, it's not codified, right? Like, it's not organized, but you can see the beginnings of it. I don't know. I think that that's, that's significant because one of the things that has really uh, struck me in my work on, on Wicked Game and also on 1865 is just how you know, uh, the, the, the complications are broadened because the, 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 the table is bigger, you know, because for a period of time, there's just white men sitting at the table and that's it. Yeah. Well, the, the, the nuances and complications and challenges grow exponentially because more people are sitting at the table and there are more voices represented. And the messiness of America, the vulnerabilities of the Constitution are really brought to bear as there are more voices at the table. When it's just white men dictating the way we do things around here and establishing the status quo, a lot of the Constitution's vulnerabilities are manageable. And when there are so many different voices at the table, the world that the Founding Fathers envisioned for themselves, I think, starts to break down a little bit. And I think, in a, in a, in a sense, that's what 1865 is about. And I think that that'll be the real challenge of our society in the long view is whether or not we can live up to the highest possible ideals of our founders despite their glaring shortcomings in the original sin. Our second Ohioan was a presidential contender. Uh, it was really comes out of the selection that Stephen had just mentioned, the election of 1872. Uh, he talked about Susan B. Anthony voting for President Grant illegally. But we're going to talk about another Ohioan, a woman who also made history in that election. That is Victoria Woodhall of Homer, Ohio. Homer, a little town in Licking County, Ohio, just east of Columbus. And Victoria was the first female to ever run for president of the United States. We're going to talk with Lisa Wood from the Ohio History Connection about Victoria Woodhall, uh, someone we call the most interesting woman in the world. We did an episode in our first season about her called Ohio versus the Victorian Age. How she gets out of extreme poverty in Ohio uh, and how she becomes her and her sister, Tennessee. Her younger sister start the first female brokerage in New York City after befriending Commodore Vanderbilt. Uh, she was originally Victoria Claflin uh, and her sister, Tennessee Claflin. They start a newspaper called Woodhall and Claflin, which is also very successful. And in the 1870s, Victoria Woodhall moves into politics. Victoria becomes an outspoken proponent of women's suffrage. She makes the first speech ever by a woman to a congressional committee. It's in 1871 when she speaks to the Judiciary Committee at their invite about adding women to the voting rules. Uh, we talk with Lisa Wood about that historic day when Victoria Woodhall enters the political arena. Her idea that to try and get 
you know, a constitutional amendment to allow women to vote. It doesn't pass. It doesn't get out of judiciary. Um, but on January 2nd, 1871, she once again made history and spoke before the Judiciary Committee in the United States Capitol. Uh, general Benjamin Butler, um, Civil War general who is elected to Congress after the war, he is a fairly progressive individual and he is a women's suffrage supporter. And it is believed that, you know, he was... It, it, what we think is that he just invited her to talk. <laughs> um, he thought, um, you know, I mean, Susan B. Anthony was sitting right behind her when she gave the speech. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, um, Victoria was just, I mean, she was only 30, 32, 33. She was in her early thirties at that time. So she was much younger. She wasn't someone who had been associated with women's suffrage for decades. So it was kind of a shot in the arm. I mean, to this, this movement that was fractured and squabbling about things, whether should men be members? Should we pressure Congress? Should we work at the state level? They were squabbling about a lot of tactical things and, Victoria's argument was so simple and so novel. And I mean, she just went in there and said, these amendments guarantee us the vote. All Congress has to do is recognize that, write something, pass a law, go for it. Maybe President Grant will sign it. At, for, for a brief period, 1870, 1871, she's a bit of a darling of the suffrage movement. She has money from her brokerage to donate. The suffrage movement was always hurting for money. It was always an issue um you know how to fund speaking tours how to print newspapers how to do you know pay to get people's attention um was always always an issue for the suffragists so victoria walking in and writing a few big checks i mean they appreciated that but in 1871 victoria woodhall decides to run for president of the united states the women's suffrage movement has moved away from they will not be her backing party she ends up aligning herself with a party called the Equal Rights Party. The Equal Rights Party and her select Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist, former slave, as her running mate. It doesn't appear that not only did Douglass never accept this nomination as he supported President Grant during the 1872 election, but he also, I don't think, ever met Victoria Woodhull. She picked him because she said he embodied the ideals, the type of ticket she wanted. Was it that serious of a presidential run? Not really. Lisa explains um, how the balloting system worked. I mean, parties printed the ballots. So the Republican Party printed a ticket and the Democratic Party printed a ticket. And you went in and you said, I want to vote the Republican ticket. And you gave, they gave you the ballot and you dropped it in the Republican box. And so, you know, with the Equal Rights Party being, um, not being, you know, the most well-organized <laughs> political party, not, not having, yeah, yeah not, there, it's not a nationwide party with a nationwide organization. So at most, it's, I mean, it's possible that there's, you know, some ballots could have been cast for her, perhaps in New York, but there's just no record of how many well, ballots and, were Well, and cast. the other thing, you know, I think, uh, even some of the ballots that may have been cast for, they just didn't even count them um, because, you know, the people at the polling place deemed that she was an illegal candidate. Um, she wasn't 35 yet. She correct. would have turned 30. She would have been 35, like, just short. I think her birthday would have been, like, right before the inauguration or something. So yeah. she she was, yeah, there was that question of age, um, which is... Um, 
So there was there was a legitimate well, constitutional and she's question. also she's also in jail the night of of the eighteen seventy two presidential election. Yes. But in this whole election battle between Grant and Greeley in eighteen seventy two, in the background is Victoria Woodhall, the country's first female presidential candidate. And on election day in eighteen seventy two, Woodhall doesn't win. In fact, it's said that only a few thousand people voted for her, even though there's no way to prove the balloting that was done, as most places simply didn't count her ballots, um, and some places just destroyed the ballots that were turned in for her. Grant wins. It's a closer election than some thought, but Grant wins a pretty sweeping, about 3.6 million to 2.8 million votes. But Victoria Woodhull, the other candidate for president in 1872, wouldn't know those results. Because the Sunday before the election, she was arrested and thrown in jail in New York City. So, you know, she's, I guess she's feeling a little desperate toward by that point in time. You know, it's right before the election. And it's pretty clear to anybody paying attention that if, you know, the chance, the snowball's chance in hell she had, well, the snowballs are, are melting, you know, it's, it. but she, I think this gives credence to the idea that she always thought that this could happen. I think she really believed it could happen, but she wants to make, get attention and she wants to attack back against just all the criticism from so many different areas. So they print an issue of Woodhall and Claflin's weekly, um, there's an article about Henry Beecher and affairs. He, he was rumored to have a lot of affairs. <laughs> um, but there was one particular affair. They print a second article in that newspaper. This may be the thing that really, really sunk everything. Um, they, there was another a stockbroker type, Luther Chalice was his name. Mm-hmm. Tennessee pens a very graphic story about him and an orgy and the debauchery and prostitution of two underage girls and by by any standard it's not it was a pretty sensational story so it's stemming from a party in new york that, yes. that they were all at yeah. yes yes that it happened a couple years before they printed it actually yeah by 1872 this party had happened a few years earlier mm-hmm. And also the Beecher-Tilton affair was alleged to have happened a few years before they wrote the story about it in fall of 1872. But the, these papers of Claflin and, and, and Woodhall papers start selling like hotcakes. I it mean, does. It does. They can't print it fast enough. They, it, was good they, it was good they earned some money because they needed it for bail. Victoria just had enough of the hypocrisy, and she put it out there in print. But in 1872... To print something like the National Enquirer today was unheard of, and many believed it to be illegal. People like Anthony Comstock. Comstock's the man who does end up arresting Victoria Woodhall for sending obscene things, uh, materials through the mail. He has them mailed to him, and he sees Victoria Woodhall as a danger to our country, our moral fiber, and he arrests her, and he has her arrested multiple times for distributing obscene materials through the mail, for libel her trial, she's ultimately acquitted of all charges. But it bankrupts her. She's forced to close the stock brokerage on Wall Street. She uh, closes the newspaper. She loses her great house in Manhattan. And she's alienated from her former friends in the women's suffrage movement. Lisa talks about how her run for president and her quest for equality leaves Victoria Woodhall destitute. You know, they get arrested. They have a hearing. They pay their bail. And... 
eventually, I mean, there's a point when even if you don't like somebody or agree with what they say, being repeatedly arrested for the same crime and not being charged, it gets to be a little ridiculous. They, they'd spend 30 days in jail in, yes. in, in New York yeah. jails, yeah. Yeah, and they were the jails were known to be awful. Mm-hmm. So eventually, by, by the time... <clears throat> Comstock runs out of reasons to invent to arrest them. They've had to pay very heavy bail fines and they are stretched thin. They're having trouble finding a place to rent in New York. I mean, she arrives in New York around 1868 and by 1872 is already fallen out <laughs> with everyone. So, I mean, her position in New York society was never more than... It is know, crazy how much all this happens in, you know, yeah. really f- five years. I mean, Yeah, all of this so happens in a, you know, in a period of like five, six years. And then through a great stroke of luck she in tennessee they decide to go to england the most interesting woman in the world victoria woodhall would live happily ever after in england go back and listen to our episode from season one ohio versus the victorian age you can get the complete story on victoria woodhall from homer ohio she also lived in cincinnati for a period Uh, but victoria was about a hundred years ahead of her time in the fight for women's equality Lisa talks about how Victoria believed in actions, speaking louder than words. Wow, I love this statement. She just says, All this talk of women's rights is moonshine. Women have every right. They only have to exercise them. If only that had been true. Or when she talks about, you know, in response to the brokerage, we are doing more daily for women's rights by practically exercising the right to carry on our own business than the diatribes of papers and platform speeches will do in 10 years. I mean, she had a good point. I mean, she had a very good point. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, they loved writing their newspaper. They loved giving, you know, the speeches and you know, and she was saying that, I mean, she was saying that around 1870, you know, actions are going to speak louder than words. Go out into the street and do your thing. Don't sit at home and wait to get the vote before you think you can start exercising rights. Go out and do it. ahead into the 20th century and we'll talk in a later episode another Ohioan who nearly became president was Robert Taft the son of President William Howard Taft who we'll discuss later this season Mr. Republican from Cincinnati Robert Taft uh, nearly becomes the Republican nominee in 1952 we'll save that discussion for a future episode but we move to a previous episode we did about John Glenn last season our episode John Glenn versus the world one of my favorite episodes we've ever done uh, also one of our most listened to episodes. And go back and find that one to hear about his incredible life. From his youth in New Concord, Ohio, to the World War II service and Korean War, uh, and becoming the first American to orbit the Earth. In the 1970s, John Glenn, who was a friend of the Kennedys, gets into politics. But he would run in 1974 against Howard Metzenbaum, a millionaire businessman from Cincinnati, fellow Democrat, Metzenbaum's in the lead, and he says that John Glenn had never met a payroll. He's playing up his own business, you know, triumphs, and he's saying that John had never held a job. And these two are neck and neck, and they, they meet at the Cleveland City Club for a debate. 
and we'll turn it over to Bruce Carlson from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. We'll talk about the speech that would launch John Glenn into the United States Senate for a quarter of a century. It's called the Gold Star Mother Speech. In 1974, Glenn wins the primary against Howard Metzenbaum. And one of the things is Metzenbaum's very wealthy. And he says, he makes a comment that John Glenn never had a job in his life. And I know that for you and I, you know, that's just crazy that you would say that against an American hero. But you have to remember, and this really persisted throughout John Glenn's career, there was a little bit of snickering about this, like this astronaut getting involved in in politics. So while there was popular support for him among the political elite, there was this little bit of snickering about what's he doing in politics. And, you know, while Reagan had entered and a few celebrities had entered politics, you know, he didn't have as much of it as you have, obviously, today. Um, So 74 primary happens and Metzenbaum says, you know, John Glenn's never had a job in his life. And John Glenn doesn't respond, waits for the debate, and just unleashes a bomb on Metzenbaum. I had spent 23 years in the United States Marine Corps. I was through two wars. I flew 149 missions. I was in the space program. It wasn't my checkbook, it was my life that was on the line. I went the other day out to a veterans hospital, look those men out there with their mangled bodies in the eye and tell them they didn't hold a job. You go with me to any gold star mother and you look her in the eye and you tell her that her son did not hold a job. You stand in Arlington National Cemetery where I have more friends than I like to remember and you think about this nation and you tell me that those people didn't have a job. I tell you, Howard Metzenbaum, you should be on your knees every day of your life thanking God that there were some men, some men, who held a job. And they required a dedication to purpose and a love of country and a dedication to duty that was more important than life itself. And their self-sacrifice is what has made this nation possible. I've held a job, Howard. saddened to learn of the death of a great Ohioan in just this May, Annie Glenn, dying at the age 100, the wife of John Glenn. Uh, We played for you just a quick clip uh, with Herb Asher, professor emeritus of political science at The Ohio State University, who knew the Glens well, uh, and the political commentator talks about Annie Glenn uh, and how she used to joke with her husband about his space career and his political and presidential aspirations. Uh, she, she was such a good person and such a welcoming person and such a savvy person. And every once in a while, she'd give John a little grief, too. I mean, it was really, in a funny way. I mean, but John was meeting with some students here, and, uh, you know, after he went back into space, and, uh, and they, they asked him, well, why did you want to go back into space? And, uh, and a lot of us knew, I mean, we, we knew his ambition, all everybody, but he said, well, you know, all the astronauts have been younger. We need to see how space travel affects an older body. We need to do the measurements, da 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 da. And Annie is sitting there, and he's going on. And, on. and finally, Annie just chimes in and says, "John, come on, tell the real story. Tell him that you're a space junkie and you wanted to fly again." <laughs> he, he would tell the story on himself when he ran for president. Yeah, he said, 
you know, I really wanted to run for president in the worst way. And Annie would try to say, yeah, and you did. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, and that was so true. Yeah. It really was. You know, so she, no, she was very much a partner. John Glenn rises up the food chain on Capitol Hill. And in 1984, he decides to put a serious run together for the Democratic nomination for president. We're going to listen to some commercials that his, his campaign ran, but this was a serious campaign. We talked with Bruce Carlson. There was a movie called The Right Stuff based on a book by Tom Wolfe that came out in 1983. Kind of launched his, you know, his presidency. Unfortunately, like Bruce says, and Glenn says, the movie wasn't very good. Um, the famous book telling the, you know, the story of the astronauts. But Glenn was a obviously a very recognizable name. He'd been in the Senate for 10 years. He had the political experience to make a run. When was the last time a leader asked the American people for commitment and sacrifice, not just promising whatever they want to hear? When was the last time a leader set lofty goals and challenged us to reach for them? He calls for a rededication to excellence and opportunity, for leadership that is honest, courageous, common sense. And I'm still American, red, white, and blue enough to believe that we can out-invent, out-research, out-educate, out-produce, out-market anybody in this world. That's the leadership we need. That's John Glenn. John enters this 1984 Democratic primary, and there's a great episode, our guest Bruce Carlson, that we'll hear from uh, his podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, did a breakdown of the 1984 Democratic primary and the similarities between that and our crowded, gosh, what was it, 24, 25 candidates here in 2020. The main favorite is not Glenn. He's probably the number two favorite going in, um, but the lead favorite is Walter Mondale. Jimmy Carter's vice president, kind of the standard bearer, uh, you know, the old reliable Democrat in the race. We talk with Bruce about those similarities between 1984 and 2020. And we'll hear another commercial uh, from John Glenn's presidential campaign. So, you know, Glenn enters a really crowded field that's very similar to 2020. There is a great number of candidates in the 1984 election, it doesn't seem like it in the service. We just hear about like Hart and Mondale and Glenn and maybe Jesse Jackson and a few others. You know, I counted down you know, somewhere near 11 to 12 candidates running for the Democratic nomination. It was pretty big. Especially and back there were then. some fairly large debates. Yeah, especially back then, because these people, including John Glenn, by the way, got into a serious amount of debt. It's not like today where you can run and raise money on the Internet. Small donors were not really much of a thing back then. John Glenn was paying off uh, debts for his campaign for some time. My real question is, as a military person, are you likely to get us into more combat, into more wars? Tell me what, what we can expect from your background uh, yeah. and how you will handle those kinds of things. No, I'll tell you this. I think as a military person, I am less likely. And let me tell you why. I have a military background, as I said, 23 years in the Marine Corps. I've been there. I've been shot at myself. My plane was hit on 12 different occasions. I know the terrors of war firsthand. I know what it's like to come back from a mission and sit down and have to write a next-of-kin letter to people I knew in the States, friends. Your husband isn't coming home. Your father is not coming home. I know what that's like, and that sears your soul. I can tell you that. I don't want to see combat ever visited again on anybody if we can possibly prevent it. And nobody is going to negotiate any harder for peace than I will. John Glenn for president. Leadership for the future. You have a front runner, Walter Mondale, who is a former vice president. 
and he's the vice president under Carter. And so he is the kind of titular head of the Democratic Party in some sense. But he's also a person that's not, you know, overly exciting to people. He has huge labor support. He's huge institutional support because he's vice president under Carter. He has the right to claim the mantle of that administration. That's very similar to what you're seeing play out with Joe Biden, where he can't say Obama's name enough. And that was there was a similar dynamic happening there. Once people criticize within a Democratic primary, when people like Hart uh, criticized the Carter administration, and, you know, represented doing something new, you know, Mondale was able to claim that uh, mantle and, and counter-criticize them for attacking their own party's president. Yeah. Well, you're seeing some of that play out. John's campaign really was, like we said, he's the number two favorite in the race, but it gets off to just a rocky start. We talk with Bruce about why these Iowa caucuses in the New Hampshire primary are really the spots that would kill his campaign. You know, these issues that we had before of John being bland and boring isn't so much the problem here. It's more of just the strategy and just the, he did not work well in the primary. I think John Glenn would have been an amazing national candidate for president. Could have challenged Reagan in 84. We'll talk to Bruce about what went wrong in Iowa and New Hampshire in 1984. And we hear a bit of a debate as he's going off on the favorite Walter Mondale. As you get to Iowa and the one who is boosted is Gary Hart because he has some support there. He's been campaigning there a long time. When everyone's attacking each other, Mondale Glenn, people in Iowa just say, well, we've had it with these two. We want somebody with new ideas. We're picking Hart. And so Hart is the beneficiary of Glenn attacking Mondale. You get into New Hampshire, not too much later, Hart has some momentum. Glenn still thinks he's gonna win, supportive of those type of things. So he was trying to run as you would as a national candidate, like as you, the campaign you'd run against Reagan in some small halls in New Hampshire, you know, didn't work so well for him. And then you go before other people and you promise them everything else. Is this gonna be a Democratic Party that promises everything to everybody and runs up $170 billion a year? Let me finish. $170 billion a year that will only help put more people out of jobs. That's ridiculous. If we're going to balance this budget, it's going to come as we do the things that I've proposed where we cut the budget and where we go on a pay-as-you-go system, where we have a surtax, where we have do defer that indexing. That's the way to it, not going out promising everything to everybody and then not even bothering to go through the checkout counter. I'm disgusted and tired of all the vague promises. I wish that the former vice president would, in fact, get some figures down so they can be compared with what the rest of us are proposing. Glenn's trying to run also a moderate campaign in a primary, which is very difficult to do. So he's trying to say, if you vote for Mondale, he's going to end up with real expensive programs. Well, you're running in a Democratic primary. So, you know, then as it, as, as is now, it's the party that's supportive of those type of things. So he was trying to run as you would as a national candidate. Like, you know, I think that if there were no Iowa, New Hampshire, Glenn probably would have won that race. Senator Glenn would only get less than 4% of the vote during the Iowa caucus. He would do better finishing third in New Hampshire, but he was predicted to finish much higher. And on March 16th, he suspends his campaign. We talked lastly with Bruce just about uh, Bruce, who knows, he did a 10-part series on his podcast about uh, President Reagan. But we talked to him about what a Glenn versus Reagan election would have looked like. 
it certainly would have been closer than than the race that Walter Mondale ran. He was blown out. John Glenn really did scare men like Jim Baker in, in Reagan's you know reelection uh, campaign. They were scared of John Glenn. First term Reagan was in a very vulnerable position. Uh, 1982 saw one of the biggest downturns in the economy since the Great Depression. And and what was really important about 1982 in that recession is a lot of blue-collar people lost jobs that, to quote the Bruce Springsteen song, you know, weren't coming back, right? So it was a, it was a really tough recession. And there were a lot, you know, his, his approval rating wasn't very high. Uh, so going into that election... You know, somebody like a Glenn seemed like a very strong candidate because he could take on Reagan, never look like a peaceneck on defense. That wasn't going to happen to him. They could they could pin that on Mondale. They could pin that on Hard. He has a very strong military record and, and a, you know, being a national hero. You know, they're going to have to find something else. He could um, represent the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, and uh, he could probably unite some people. You know, Reagan was still on the far right of the Republican Party. Um, and the first term didn't change much in that respect. What Reagan did have is an advantage that probably made any candidate's job a little tough in 1984 is that the economy in 1983 grew a lot faster than it ever normally does. So we had this big dip in 82, but in 83, you saw a 7% increase in GDP. That's very unusual. We're extremely unusual. You get half of that and people are celebrating. Yeah, yeah. That was that makes it tough to see where, you know, that election would have gone. I certainly Glenn would have done better than Mondale. I mean, that's obvious to me now. I guess obvious to anybody with hindsight. I do believe that it, that some of the Reagan people were certainly afraid of Glenn, probably a little afraid of of Hart even. They weren't afraid of Mondale. I think they knew just how to beat him. It was just like running against Carter again from their point of view. Our final contender of the show today is from Westerville, Ohio, John Kasich, former governor uh, and a congressman from the 12th district from, I think, 83 to like 2000, 2001. Uh, He was the chairman of the House Budget Committee, ran for president in 2000 briefly, uh, but made a much more serious run in 2016, a crazy election year. And Kasich finishes runner-up in New Hampshire, the famous New Hampshire primary to Donald Trump. And we play for you uh, John Kasich's speech from that night after his surprise second-place finish, possibly setting up a run for the nomination. See, that's the old politics. That's the old politics. We never went negative because we have more good to sell than to spend our time being critical of somebody else. And maybe, maybe just maybe, at a time when clearly change is in the air, maybe just maybe we are turning the page on a dark part of American politics because tonight the light overcame the darkness of negative campaigning. And some of you remember the woman that was sitting way up in the seats and she told the story of her daughter who had been sick from she felt all alone and I asked her to come down and I hugged that woman 
and we all cried a little bit that night. And I, not long ago, at one of the big town halls, a, a lady sitting in the back, after we had gone through the mechanics of fighting drugs, she brought in the real f flesh and blood. And she talked about her 31-year-old daughter, who had been 11 months sober. And I looked around the room and said, can you imagine how hard it is to be a mom who at one point just held that little baby in her arms to have to wake up every day and ask the good Lord, and the good Lord is listening, to have her daughter recover. Now, when you are in settings like that, you begin to learn something. There are too many people in America who don't feel connected. They've got victories that no one celebrates with them. And they have defeats and pain sometimes that they have to absorb themselves. And the people of New Hampshire have taught me a lesson. And from this day forward, I'm going to go slower and spend my time listening and healing and helping and bringing people together to fix our great country. Kasich ran in 2016 as a moderate Republican, not something he had always been in his career, uh, being a little more on the conservative end. But he displays to someone with George W. Bush from 2000 the idea of the compassionate conservative, trying to find the middle ground in the party as someone that the party can rally around to avoid uh, nominating Donald Trump. And it was something Jeb Bush had tried and failed, something Marco Rubio would try and fail to do. Kasich would be the last moderate Republican standing in the 2016 Republican primary. We talked with our guest Kyle Condick, the author of Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President. Kyle from the University of Virginia Center for Politics. You've heard him on this show many times before. Um, and he'll be on our next episode when we talk about conventions. Uh, but we talked to Kyle about Kasich's run in 2016 and why it was doomed. I really think Kasich tried to position himself as essentially the, the least conservative candidate, which I think is kind of a dangerous place to be in a, uh, in, in a primary, I think particularly a Republican primary. And he, uh, in some ways, mimicked the campaign of Utah, uh, former Utah Governor John Huntsman from four years before that, in yeah. that um, Huntsman also was, was kind of uh, running as almost a, uh, something of a critic of the modern Republican Party. And again, it's just not a popular stance to take. Kasich did, of course, win Ohio. John Kasich has been in the news recently as he's going to speak at the Democratic Convention on behalf of Joe Biden. Uh, Kasich, not a fan of Donald Trump. Uh, and runs in 2016 against him. And in the Ohio primary in March, John Kasich is rewarded for staying in the race when he wins the Ohio primary. He wins it going away. Uh, he wins by, I think, 12% over our future president, Donald Trump. We play for you his speech that night in Columbus, one of the biggest nights in, in the political history of John Kasich. Have, to have people believe in you and to believe that you can bring people together and strengthen our country. I have to thank the people of the great state of Ohio. I love you, is all I can tell you. I love you. Now, I want you to know the campaign goes on. And I also want you to know that it's been my intention to make you proud. It's been my intention to have young people all across this country Watch somebody, an 
enter into politics, even though I labored in obscurity for so long, people counting me out, people in Ohio saying, why don't they ever call on him, okay? <laughs> we get all that. But we put, we put one foot in front of the other, and I want to remind you again tonight that I will not take the low road to the highest office in the land. We're going to go, we are going to go all the way to Cleveland and secure the Republican nomination. John Kasich's run as a moderate centrist Republican does fail. We talk with Kyle Condict about his victory in Ohio and how some of those results, even though Trump lost, portended success in Ohio, a state that Trump would surprisingly win, not just win, but win by 8% over Hillary Clinton on his way to the presidency. Interestingly, the places where Trump did the best were uh, in uh, kind of uh, uh, southeastern Ohio and along the border with Pennsylvania and the Ohio River. And sure enough, a lot of those counties were some of the places where um, where Trump really performed significantly better than Romney did four years prior. Uh, in fact, no, no congressional district in the entire country, of all 435 of them, shifted more toward the Republicans than Ohio's sixth congressional district in, from 2012 to 2016. Uh, Romney had won it by about 12 points. Trump won it by 42. Wow. Uh, and that was a big part of why uh, Trump did so well overall in the state of Ohio in that a lot of those places that had been in some ways trending uh, Republican anyway, I'd say particularly south of Youngstown, um, not only those places get a lot more Republican, but also Trump did way better than, than any modern Republican had done in, um, in the Mahoning Valley, namely uh, Mahoning County, Trumbull County. We don't have a book recommendation for today, uh, although we would always recommend Bellwether by Kyle Condict, our last guest, uh, Why Ohio Picks the President, great book from 2016 about the history of of Ohio's success in picking the commander-in-chief. But today we're going to suggest that you listen to two podcasts, 1865, uh, released last year. Like I said, it's nominated for Podcast of the Year uh, from the folks at Wondery. And American election, wicked game. Stephen, Eric, appreciate them joining us so much. Uh, we asked them just about all that research that they did for this show, and for all our 1865 fans out there listening, you know, what does the future hold for the show? Is there a season two? Sometimes the less you know, the better. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, Eric and I, especially Eric, uh, I mean, did an incredible amount of research. I mean, we really did. I mean, an astronomical amount of research um, and, and, you know, spread out over years and years. Um, but I would say that when it comes, even with a, a depth of nuance and even with a depth of information and even with a lot of complexity, you know, you want to be able to boil the idea down to its simplest form. You know, you want to be able to distill it to a kernel of information that's digestible. And so in that regard, sometimes the less you know about it, the better, because the more nuance that you have an understanding of and a facility for, uh, the more difficult it is to simplify, right? But at the same time, I do think it's really important to do that research, and I'm glad that we did it, because I do think it informs the way that you shape that kernel, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. it's like, 
almost like an iceberg, right? Like what the audience is going to see is just the tip of it. But if it's built on a foundation of knowledge and research and understanding, then typically, as far as its efficacy, um, you know, you're a little bit further down the path. And for this specifically, we really sought out as many firsthand accounts as we could because we're trying to really capture their personality um, and, and really get a well-rounded idea of who these people are, uh, what makes them tick. Uh, what's so next? What's next for Team 1865? Season, is there season two, a prequel, a movie? Yeah, so uh, Eric, uh, uh, Lindsay, Lindsey Graham, who is also the host of American Elections Wicked Game and the creator of the show, um, and uh, also an executive producer on 1865, uh, the three of us and our director, Rob McCollum, are um, in the middle of negotiations to do a second season, which would extend the story uh, into the election of 1868, where actually Ohio plays a pretty central role um, the premise of season two, uh, in my mind at least, I don't, I don't want to say too much, but the premise of season two is, is that we lost impeachment, now we have to beat him at the ballot box. So I do feel like it will have some reverberations in terms of what's happening in the news cycle over the course of the next you know, six to seven months. That'll do it for today. We look forward to a possible second season of 1865. Go find that anywhere you find your podcasts. Uh, really cool show. And don't forget about American Election, Wicked Game. That show's dropping every Tuesday. I think they're into the 1960s now. So many great episodes of that show, Wicked Game. Uh, Eric has written some of those episodes, and Stephen Walter serves as the co-executive producer. So thanks so much for joining us, guys. I know there's some clip show elements. Uh, every good sitcom does a clip show, uh, and I guess it was just our turn to, to do some of that. But thank you so much to the, the boys from 1865. Go listen to their show. Uh, it's, like I said, one of my favorite podcasts ever uh, and really looking forward to seeing what they come up with next. That'll do it. Join us next episode, episode eight, as we close in on a weird year for political conventions. We'll discuss all six political conventions that have taken place here in the Buckeye State, from the nomination of James Buchanan, one of the worst presidents, uh, in 1856, all the way to the nomination of Donald Trump at Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland, Ohio, just four short years ago. That'll do it for Episode 7. We're just now past the halfway point of Season 5, our Ohio in the Presidency season. And like I said, we've really, really enjoyed it uh, and hope you're enjoying it out there as well. Feel free to share it on Facebook. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Ohio v. The World Podcast uh, or retweet the show on Twitter at Ohio v. The World We'll see you in a couple of weeks when we talk conventions. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.